I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. I'd like to share the story of a man named Hiru Onada. Hiru Onada is someone maybe you've heard about before. Maybe you've heard this story before. But Hiru Onada was a Japanese soldier in the Philippines during World War II. And Hiru Onada was ordered by his superiors to conduct guerrilla warfare and not die. That simple. Conduct guerrilla warfare and not die in the Philippines. So Hiru Onada hunkered down in the jungle even after many of his comrades fled or were killed in battle. Over time, Onada repeatedly received news that the war was over, that it was safe for him to come out, but he refused to believe the news. So Hiru Onada remained hunkered down, surviving in the jungle of the Philippines until 1974, nearly 30 years after World War II ended. Hiru Onada spent 30 years hunkered down in the jungle, living in denial. He believed he was in battle, even though in reality, he wasn't in battle. The war was over. But all too often, it seems as though we as Christians are guilty of the same denial as Hiru Onada, only to the opposite extreme. Onada wasn't in a battle, but he lived as if he was. And all too often, we as Christians are in a battle, and yet we live as if we're not. We pretend we're not in a battle. We're in denial of the battle that goes on around us every single day. Now, we're going to talk about that more this morning, about what it looks like for Christians to be in battle. But being that this is the last week of our Ephesians series, week seven, I want to briefly recap what we've looked at so far. In week one, we talked about how the gospel changes our identities. In 2 Corinthians, Paul would refer to believers as new creations, not just refurbished, not just cleaned up, not just updated, but new. Because of what God has done for us and sending his son to the cross and raising his son from the dead, we are not the same people that we were before. Our identities have drastically and totally changed. In week two, we talked about how the gospel breaks down barriers. In the Ephesian church, there were two groups, Jews and Gentiles, who historically did not always get along. And yet Paul looks at these two groups and he tells them to forget their grudges, forget their rivalries, forget their divisions, because God is taking these two men and making one new man through the gospel bringing them together under the lordship of Christ. In week three, we talked about how the gospel is displayed to the world by the church. When people look at you, when people look at me, when people see us serving one another and loving one another and caring for one another and teaching one another and rebuking one another, the whole idea is that people might see that, might see our reconciliation and say, you know what? Maybe there really is something to this gospel they talk about. Maybe there really is something to this Jesus that they follow. Because our reconciliation shows the world what is possible when God reconciles people to himself. In week four, we talked about how the gospel grows us together. We grow as a community. We are not intended to grow in isolation. 
God has given us gifts. God has given us abilities and roles that we might serve one another for the common good of the church. In week five, we talked about how the gospel gives us new life from the inside out and how that new creation on the inside is seen in how we live on the outside. That we might become imitators of God because of how the gospel has transformed us from the inside out. And then in week six, we talked about how the gospel changes our relationships, that we might submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Paul shows that this affects every single relationship that we have. It affects our marriages. It affects our families. And back in that time, Paul argued that it would even affect how a slave or a slave owner treated one another. Because the gospel permeates all of it. We've talked a lot about the gospel. A lot about what God has done and what God is doing in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our words, and in our deeds. But we shift gears a little bit today as we move and finish Ephesians chapter 6. So with that, open with me to Ephesians 6.10. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 839. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. Before we pray, let's read Ephesians 6.10, and then we'll pray after that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Father, I pray that you will help us to be strong. I pray that you will help us to stand. I pray that you will help us to stand firm in the midst of battle. God, sometimes we're guilty of not really embracing the idea that when we follow your son Jesus, we are enlisted. And God, I pray that we will take that seriously. I pray that you'll speak to us this morning about what it looks like to stand firm and, and how in the world we can possibly stand firm against the enemy that we face. God, thank you that you've brought us together this morning, that we have the ability to get in our cars and drive here safely, sing praises to you, take communion, give of what you've given us, and listen to your word. God, I pray that this time would be fruitful and beneficial for us, but more than anything, I pray that it would be glorifying for you. We love you, we praise you, we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's pick up where we stopped reading in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, first things first, before we go any further in this passage, we need to realize something. We need to realize that we are in a battle. We need to not be like Hiru Onada, living in complete denial of what's going on around us. As I mentioned before, too often it seems as though we live as if we're not in battle. We don't seem to take this idea very seriously. Now, why would we not take that idea seriously? After all, Paul says it right here, stand strong, we're in a battle. 
Well, maybe we don't take it seriously because we have a silly view of Satan. Paul just mentioned the devil and his schemes. And admit it, sometimes in today's day and age, when people hear the words the devil or people hear the word Satan, if we actually live and think and speak as if Satan is real, people might think we're weird. People could view us as extremists or lunatics. And we don't want to be thrown in the pile with those people who blame Satan literally for everything. The person who blames Satan that their car broke down, failing to mention they haven't changed the oil in three years. We don't want to be like that. But at the same time, we're foolish if we hold on to a silly, trivial view of Satan. In fact, Satan would love for us to continue holding a silly or comic or cartoonish view of who he is. You may have heard me quote before from The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. The Screwtape Letters is a fiction where one elder demon is advising a younger demon on how to best tempt the human that he's been assigned to. And the older demon writes this. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. He cannot believe in that. All too often, we're guilty of underestimating Satan, of underestimating who the devil is and the schemes that he might throw at us. We absolutely must have a realistic and biblical view of who Satan is as we realize we're in this battle. But maybe we deny that we're in battle, not because we have a silly or cartoonish or childish view of Satan. Maybe we deny that we're in battle because our battle is not exactly an ordinary battle. Paul just said that it's not a battle of flesh and blood. It's not quite as visible, not quite as tangible as that kind of battle. But imagine yourself in the shoes of a Christian in the Middle East, where your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones who follow Christ, they run the risk of being slaughtered if they walk out of their front door. They believe that they are in a battle with Satan, with the cosmic powers of darkness, with the rulers and authorities, with the forces of evil. They believe they're in a battle because they see it. And yet for us, sometimes it's not quite as easy to see. I recently read an interview with a Cuban pastor, and he shared that if you get on the wrong side of the Castro government in Cuba as a church leader, as a Christian leader, there will be state-sponsored attempts to draw you into sin. Whether it's financial sin or sexual sin, anything the state can do to bring you down, they will set you up to do it. They will try to draw you into that sin. We hear things like that and we say, really, I'm in a battle. I don't have to stare down a sword. I don't have state sponsored attempts to get me to stumble into sin. It sure doesn't really seem like I'm in a battle. I can't really see it. It's not really obvious. I don't see it the way they do. But the truth is that we must realize that we are in the midst of of a battle, even if our battle does not look the same as Christians in other places. 
First off, we must understand that Satan is a real and dangerous and formidable adversary, not just some cartoon in red tights. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter takes a pretty serious view of Satan in this passage. Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan hates me. Satan hates you. Satan hates the church. Satan hates this church. Satan hates Christ. And at this very moment, Satan is on the prowl looking to devour God's people, whatever means necessary. And when you think about it, the only thing more dangerous than a snarling and hungry lion who is out for blood is a snarling and hungry lion who is out for blood that we pretend isn't there. Because it seems a little bit weird. It seems a little bit extreme to believe that. But again, Satan would love nothing more than for us to continue underestimating him. Continue denying that the lion is prowling and he's looking for you and he's looking for me. We must realize that we have a real and dangerous enemy. We also must realize that we are in a real and dangerous battle. Again, just because our battle doesn't look the same as Christians' battles from other places, we absolutely should not take lightly that we are in a battle ourselves. And while I'm not attempting to equate the day-in and day-out fight that we face with Christians in the Middle East or Christians in Cuba, we must not be mistaken that we are in a knockdown, drag-out fight ourselves. In the same way that Satan will use the sword of Isis to draw people away from Christ, to scare people away from standing firm in their faith, the same way that Satan can use governments in Cuba to tempt Christians to fall into sin, Satan can use the sins that we are tempted with every single day here in America to draw us away from Christ as well. The sins of greed, selfishness, lust, materialism, idolatry, all of those things can be used by Satan and they are just as deadly as any other weapon that Satan has at his disposal. We are in a real battle and we face a real enemy. Now, I don't say these things to sound extreme. I'm not advocating for the bunker mentality that too many Christians have, the mentality that we need to lock the doors and board up the windows because the big bad world is evil and we just need to stay safe and holy here in our little Christian cocoon. That is not what I'm advocating for. I'm also not advocating for this idea that fellow humans created in God's image are our enemies. They're not. There are people out there who are unwittingly being used by Satan to oppose Christ and oppose the church. Those people are not our enemies. Those people are victims of the true enemy. And it is our job to bring the gospel to them, to set them free from that captivity that they're in. But nevertheless, do not be fooled. We are in a real battle with a real enemy. 
And we would do well to not take that lightly. Let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Paul goes on with this imagery of a battle. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So we realize that we're in a battle. We realize that we face a real enemy. But we also must realize that we cannot face this enemy We cannot stand firm in this battle on our own. We simply can't do it. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians to put on the armor of God. Because if you try to stand firm, if you try to fight this battle on your own without God's help, without God's armor, that is a death wish. Do not try to fight this battle on your own because you can't. John Calvin writes, where we resist human strength, sword is opposed to sword. Man contends with man, force is met by force, and skill by skill. But here the case is very different, for our enemies are such as no human power can withstand. Satan is not all-powerful, but Satan is more powerful than you, if you think that you can take him on all by yourself. If you think that you can face temptation and sin and persecution all alone without the armor of God, that's a death wish for you. We're in a real battle facing a real enemy, one who is too powerful for us to stand up to on our own. It sounds sobering. It sounds intimidating. It sounds scary. But then Paul continues in verses 14 through 20. And talks about just how this armor helps us to stand. Verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." Again, things sound pretty intimidating so far. You're in a battle. You need to stand firm. The schemes of the devil, the cosmic powers, the rulers and authorities, the evil forces, all of these things are against you. But then Paul says, it's okay. Because God equips you to stand firm in the midst of this battle. God is giving you armor. Put it on. Stand firm. Don't be scared of the enemy when you have this armor on. The armor he lists, he lists the belt of truth. After all, that would make sense. Scripture does refer to Satan as the father of lies. What better weapon than truth? Paul refers to the breastplate of righteousness. Not that our righteousness can really do much of anything, but rather Christ's righteousness can stand against the schemes of Satan. 
we find our footing in the gospel. That thing we've talked about over and over and over in Ephesians that Paul has drilled into the heads of these Ephesian believers. That helps us to stand firm as we remember it. Paul talks about the shield of faith. I read this week that Spartan women would often give a charge to their sons as they left for their first battle. And the charge would sound something like this, either return with your shield or on it. In other words, be with your shield when you come back. Now, when enemies would shoot flaming arrows, something else that Paul mentioned in this passage, these flaming arrows would often look massive and intimidating in the sky. That was part of their danger, their intimidation factor. But a good shield not only prevented the arrow from piercing you, a good shield was designed to extinguish the flame as soon as that arrow landed in the shield. Now, if you're an inexperienced soldier... When you're hit by a flaming arrow, even if you catch it in your shield, you might be tempted to drop the shield. What if the shield catches on fire? But if they drop their shield, they would be just as much vulnerable for the next wave of attacks. In other words, don't drop your shield. Hold on to it. Catch the arrows with it. Let the arrows be extinguished. And if you can't hold on to it, Spartan young man, then come home on your shield. But under no circumstances should you drop your shield. I pray that we too would hold on to our shields. That we would trust that it is equipped, our faith is equipped to handle the flaming arrows that Satan might throw at us. The next part of the armor is the helmet of salvation. After all, we've talked about how Christ is the head of the church. The head was the most important part of the body. Salvation protects our head. Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit. Earlier in Ephesians, he talked about how we've been sealed by the Spirit, how it's like our passport. If we want to prove that we're a follower of Christ, then we simply show that we have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. It is what confirms us as truly one of God's people. It's what gives us confidence that we truly are heirs of the promise of salvation that has come and is coming our way. Hold on to the sword of the Spirit. And then Paul mentions prayer. And I love the way Paul mentions prayer. He doesn't talk about it as some passive last resort. If all else fails and we have no other options, I guess then we should probably pray. For Paul, prayer is a powerful and effective weapon against the schemes of the devil, against the temptation of sin, against the forces of evil against the flaming arrows that fly. So don't be mistaken. We are in a fight. If we weren't in a battle, if Paul didn't truly believe that, he wouldn't have spent all this time talking about armor. But the good news with that armor is that God equips his people to stand firm, even in the midst of this battle. Let's finish out the passage. Ephesians 6 21 through 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. 
Paul seems to understand that it's easier to stand in this battle when you have someone beside you encouraging you, locking arms with you. That's why he sends Tychicus. You and I, we have one another. Look around you at your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and know that we are all in a battle, that we are all fighting together, that we lock arms and stand firm as we face down the schemes that Satan might throw at us. Pick up in 23. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What's interesting about these last few verses is that Paul talks about peace. How can Paul talk about peace? He just spent all this time talking about battle and armor and flaming arrows and sealed shields and swords. How in the world can Paul possibly then say, peace be to you? Hope you have peace. How can Paul say that? Why would Paul say that? Well, Paul can say that with confidence. Because God's people can have peace even in the midst of fighting this battle. Because we already know for sure that God has won the war. The outcome is sure. Satan's ultimate once and for all defeat is inevitable. Satan may be powerful. He may still find ways to cause havoc in the lives of God's people. But Satan is fighting a losing battle. Martin Luther wrote the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, hitting on this idea of battle. And a few of the lyrics say this, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. For kids, doth means does. Doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. That sounds pretty intimidating. That sounds pretty scary. Our ancient foe seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great. He hates us. On earth, there is none equal to him. That sounds scary. That sounds intimidating. But then Luther continues later in the song. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Luther acknowledged that Satan was powerful, that on earth is not his equal, that Satan hates us and hates the church. But Luther also made it clear that we do not tremble for him. His rage, we can stand up against it because his doom is sure. That's already been sealed. That's already been guaranteed at the cross. In Genesis 3, it looked as though Satan had thwarted everything. Adam and Eve fell into sin. He succeeded in tempting them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems like just like that, Satan ruined everything. But then God gives a promise and says that an offspring of woman will crush Satan's head one day. Just wait. When Jesus faced down Satan, the beginning of his ministry, being tempted in the wilderness, Jesus stood firm. He wasn't tempted by turning stones into bread, even though I'm sure he was starving. 
He wasn't tempted by power over all the kingdoms that Satan could possibly give to him. He wasn't tempted to test God. Jesus won that battle. But at the same time, at the end of Jesus' life, it didn't look like the victory was permanent. It's not often that you win a battle as your Lord and your Savior is executed, hanging on a cross. That's not the typical symbol of victory. And yet, Jesus did win at the cross. Jesus guaranteed God's victory over Satan, guaranteed God's victory in the war, even as he hung with his body broken and his blood shed for you and for me. With Jesus' death, Satan's most powerful weapon, death itself, that weapon was defeated once and for all. One little word shall fell him. His doom is sure. In the meantime, we fight the battles, standing in God's armor. God equips us to fight right now. But we fight knowing that for sure, Victory is inevitable in the big scheme of things. One day, Satan will be no more. There will be no more schemes, no more flaming arrows, no more threats, no more swords, no more shields. At the end of the book of Revelation, there is this imagery of the new heaven and the new earth. And one of the things that the author of Revelation says is that the gates are always open. At that time, it was unheard of to leave your gates open in a major city. You left yourself vulnerable for attack. But the author of Revelation can say that when that new heaven and that new earth comes, you don't have to worry about closing the gates. There's no more enemies that we have to worry about anymore. We fight the battle in the meantime. But we know that in the end, that as we stand firm in the armor of God right now, In the end, God wins. Let's pray. Father, every single day, if we've been Christians for long, we can acknowledge that there are battles that we fight. There are battles with sin, battles with temptation, battles with doubt, all kinds of different battles. And God, sometimes these battles go relatively smoothly for us. We stand firm in your word. We consider what your son has done for us. And we're able to stand firm. And we move on. But sometimes the battles, they last a little bit longer. They're not quite as easy to overcome. Sometimes the same battles seem to creep their heads up over and over and over again. But God, regardless of where we stand in the midst of these battles, even when we lose the occasional battles with temptation and sin, God, we trust and we are confident that you've won the war. That your cross sealed victory for your son Jesus. That it's in your cross that we find confidence and hope and assurance that we will stand on the last day. God, Satan is powerful. The battles that we fight are real. 
But I pray that you'll help us to stand firm. I pray that you'll bolster us, strengthen us, encourage us, that we can bolster and strengthen and encourage one another. And God, I pray that we would trust that no matter how our day in and day out battles go, our ultimate hope is on the truth that you've won the war. Help us to stand firm, God. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you are fighting a battle bigger than you can imagine, and you're fighting it all on your own. And so I pray that you'd make that decision this morning, that you would accept Christ as your Savior and Lord. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They can answer questions. They can share their own stories. They can pray with you as you stand in the midst of battle right now. Maybe you are a Christian. You've already accepted Christ, but... You're in the midst of a battle, and you just really need someone to talk to. Talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to talk with you. So take advantage of that time as we sing our last song.